Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast. Messiah was going to look like before he came, right? But did they understand him before he came at all? Actually, they were looking for the wrong guy, right? They were looking for a Messiah that was never going to come, and they missed Jesus when he came. And so they didn't understand him before he came. The disciples didn't understand him when he came. They constantly had to put two and two together afterward, right? John 12 16 says his disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy, but after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. So they were still putting two and two together about Jesus's perspective after he had died, resurrected, and ascended. It's tough to understand everything about what Jesus was saying. He's the son of God after all, right? He has a much higher, bigger perspective on the world than we do. And, and it takes time to fully understand the kingdom of God too. In fact, that's one of the concepts that he taught that's probably the hardest to understand. So before we get into Jesus's words, we're going to Matthew 5. We're going to read his actual teachings about the kingdom of God today. Before we get into that, though, I just want to give you a little illustration so that we're all sort of on the same page about what the kingdom of God is, specifically about when it is, okay? So for this illustration to work, think of this white board here as God, okay? Already the illustration breaks down a little, I know, because God doesn't have edges and this board has edges, but just go with me here, Okay? This is God. Within God is time. This is the timeline that we're on. God exists outside of time, but within him exists time. Now, somewhere around the beginning, the Bible tells us, humanity showed up on the scene. Right? God created humans as his last act of creation, and he put us in charge of the world of creation, right? He said, okay, you go, you're managing this now, it's all under your control. But we know how the story goes, and somewhere after creation, we fell. The fall happened, humans chose selfishness, which is just sinfulness, sin is just selfishness. We chose our own way over God's way. We fell, and with us, because we had dominion over the earth, all of creation fell too. Are you with me so far? This is theological teaching, but pretty basic so far. So because of the fall, we are all now barreling towards all of time, all of humanity, all of creation is barreling towards God's wrath. 
Nothing we can do about it. We're all born into selfishness now. We have a proclivity toward selfishness. We are born into sin, barreling towards God's wrath, unless someone does something. Y'all know where I'm going with this? God sent Jesus to not only die on the cross, a criminal's death, but to rise again. The resurrection is actually incredibly important to our theology. I know there are crosses in all the churches, and we're always talking about his death. But without the resurrection, none of it would make any sense. We're all going to resurrect someday. Revelations 20 tells us. It's going to be a second resurrection. We're all going to stand before God in judgment, judged by our deeds. That's what Revelation says. Pentecostal, evangelical Christians, anybody have a problem with that? We're going to be judged by our deeds. No? Nobody has any problem with that? You all are perfect people? I see how it is. Okay. Well, those of us who are honest know that we will never measure up by deeds alone. Not ever. I'm never, ever going to make up for all of the selfish thoughts and actions that I create in my world. I'm never going to do enough selfless things to measure up. That's why Jesus had to come. When we accept Jesus in our lives, his sacrifice, his blood, the Bible tells us it blots out all the selfish deeds. God forgets them. He not only forgives them, he forgets them. He chooses to forget them and not hold them against you anymore. So when that Lamb's Book of Life is opened, Revelation 20 or 21 tells us about the the Book of Life that God judges us by. When that is opened, all he sees is Jesus' blood. You get a free ticket into heaven because what Jesus did for us. It couldn't happen without him. There, the, the word gospel is actually a four-part word. It sort of has four meanings. And I didn't know this till this week. But uh, the, the word gospel actually predates biblical text. I always thought it was just a biblical word. But in reality, they used it before they wrote the Bible. And they used it as a single event. This is the four parts of the word gospel. It's a single event happening within a much larger context that was number two, that changes the future and therefore, as a result, changes everything. Single event happening within a much larger context that changes the course of the future and as a result, changes everything. Now, here's what this means to us. Instead of humanity barreling towards God's wrath, we are now, we get to take a U-turn here because Jesus changed the future. There'll be a second coming Revelation tells us Jesus is coming back. There'll be a new heaven, new earth, that those of us who believe in Jesus will get to experience someday. Changes the future, and now changes how we look at everything. In fact, this wouldn't be a complete story without the nation of Israel in here, right? Because the nation of Israel was God's chosen people set up to proclaim that God is good to all the nations. They were supposed to be the city on a hill attracting people 
to God, right? It wasn't like they were set aside and everybody else was doomed and God just loved Israel. In fact, they were supposed to be so attractive to people, right? They were supposed to be the example of God's protection and provision and blessing, might, power. Therefore, everybody else would say, I want to worship that God too. They have it really good. Let's go do that. They're living in the kingdom of God. Everything's peace and love and happiness in Israel. But we know that story. It didn't work out because it can never work out with humanity like that. We can never follow the law to the letter enough that it fixes what's going on in here. We need Jesus. And because Jesus came back, we can now understand that not only is our future changed, but everything is changed within that. In fact, from the time that he resurrected, we are now all living in the kingdom of God. This was the kingdom of man by our deeds. I'm just scribbling here. This is all the kingdom of God. And here's why I want you to understand this. Most Christians think or sort of have a a default setting in our minds that when Jesus comes, the second coming, all of this will be the kingdom of God. And here we are just biding our time, sitting on our hands, waiting for Jesus to come back so that life can be perfect. Jesus is going to reign a thousand years on earth and and everything's going to be good and perfect. Well, it's not exactly what the Bible says about the thousand year reign. I got really into the end of Revelation this week, by the way. I wish I could actually teach more of that don't have time for it, but there are some links on the sermon notes. You should totally go down those rabbit holes this week. But new heaven, new earth, this is not the kingdom of God. All of this is the kingdom of God. And that's what I want you to see today. Not only is later the kingdom, but we're living in the kingdom now too, here and now. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we get to enjoy new grace, freedom, and hope like no other generations had before us. This is the kingdom. Now, what's the problem? Right? We can all probably accept this teaching, but there's a problem. Anybody guess it? (laughs) Now I'm in like kids' ministry setting since I taught them last week, and I like want to call on people. I won't do that to you. The problem is that we should be the example, just like Israel was hundreds, thousands of years ago. We should now be the example. We should be living in the kingdom of God and acting as if we were. We should be forgiving each other wholeheartedly and quickly, right? We should be generous with each other, sharing in everything we have. We should be the example to the world. And yet most non-Christians, at least in our culture in America today, Look at Christians as judgmental, boring, rude, right? They don't want any part of it. In fact, most of them would look at us and say, I don't know about eternity, right? I don't know whether heaven and hell actually exist, but I know what you're living in looks a lot like hell today. Why would I want that, right? They look at our lives and say, I don't want any part of organized religion because it's nothing but guilt and shame. I'm going to live my life free. And they go about doing what they see as freedom, but will eventually enslave them. They can't see it because we're not living it. We're not a good enough example to to be the city on a hill, to bring people to Jesus. And so Jesus in Matthew 5 actually gives us some hints 
as to how we can do this. You know, I have seen, just before we get into this, I've seen so many people leave. I've been in the church my entire life. Many of you know that Pastor Jerry, my dad, planted this church when I was five. I've I've literally been in this church almost my whole life. I am very much a product of a good, healthy, loving church. And it's a good thing, and I love the church. I was raised with this love for the church. I mean, you guys are my family, right? And especially as we've gone through all this this surgery stuff and, and Aaron's diagnosis and everything, you guys have been there for us like crazy. I can see how a church should work because of you all. But I've seen so many people leave, too, over my last 32 years, right? So many people leave. And every time I preach, I have that perspective in my head, too. I can hear their skepticism. I can hear their questions and their doubt. This is why I give you stuff like this, because I want to answer those questions before they're even happening. I can hear in the back. Like, I have blind faith, right? Because of... uh, I guess I can't call it blind faith. I have what feels like blind faith. I can immediately say, yes, God, I believe that your promises are true because he has proven it to me so many times. So I guess it's not really blind. But they can't. They need to see the background, the big picture. They need to understand why we believe what we believe. That's why we go over stuff like this. Because as Jesus is teaching us how to enter into the kingdom of God, how to understand how to live in the kingdom of God, we need to know why. Because all non-Christians see is pain. Sin and pain. If the kingdom of God is here now, why is there still so much pain? This is the kind of questions I can hear non-Christians asking when I give a sermon. Why is there still so much pain? Because God is teaching us how to live within it and how to rely on his grace, even through pain. And Jesus gives us hints as to how to do that. So let's get into Matthew 5. Now, you might know a little bit of this in maybe the NIV or King James Version or NLT Version. They're called the Beatitudes, and we hear them a lot. You know, you're blessed when you mourn for those who mourn will be comforted. We hear them a lot at at funerals and that sort of thing. I'm going to read it today in the message translation because it has some very specific things to say about the kingdom and because it helped me really think about these things in a brand new way. Okay, so first one, Matthew 5. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, the disciples, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Does it sound like you should be blessed when you're at the end of your rope? Does it feel like you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope? Let me tell you what, we have been there a few times over the past 14 months, the very end of our rope. And I can tell you there is a special kind of grace that comes in those moments, a special kind of anointing, a special kind of God's presence. And Psalms tells us that God is with the brokenhearted, that he is close to the brokenhearted. There's a special kind of presence. And I would never be able to understand that perspective if I hadn't gone through it myself. (laughs) But now I know that when I'm at the end of my rope, when there's less of me, there's more of God and his role. 
You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Again, doesn't sound like a blessing. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed, by the way, that is the perfect picture of the church and everything that we've gone through the past 14 months. The more you give in to a church body, the more it gives back to you. Generously, overwhelmingly generously. My life is a product of this, but especially the past 14 months. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind, and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. What? <laughs> right? The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer, even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. I imagine Jesus saying that with a little mischievous grin. <laughs> My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. What is Jesus teaching us here? He's teaching us how to live in the kingdom of God and not just that we can change our circumstances because there are many places where God, Jesus does teach that you can change the physical world, right? The wind and the waves, they will obey you. You have dominion over your world. Go and change it. But there are also times when you can't change the circumstances. And what then? I think... We often teach as the church, you walk on the wind and the waves, and you can speak things into existence, and you can call things that are not as though they are, and all of those things are true. But there are times, and I know this personally, that you speak to things and they do not change, because God is sovereign. He can do what he wants, when he wants. He doesn't always take our advice on what should happen, right? He knows better than we do. And that's when we have to take a, a back seat, right? Allow him to drive a little bit and say, I trust you, God. And not only do I trust you, but I'm going to change my perspective to line up with yours. That's what he's teaching us here. And life is tough. You lose things that are most dear to you. You're at the end of your rope sometimes. There is mourning, grieving, and loss. There's pain. But all of those things are there to teach you something I'm in every single moment. Stop whining about it and start understanding who I am. He's, he's teaching us how to understand the kingdom. 
how to make it all make sense. Because the gospel is a single event happening in a much larger context that changed the future and therefore changes everything. And I bet if you think about your own walk with God and you look back to when you first understood the gospel, when you first came to Jesus, it happened like that for you too. It was a single event happening in the much larger context of your life that changed your future and therefore changed everything else. The way you look at everything else. There was a woman last night who's fairly new around here. She signed up to get baptized next week. And uh, she was saying to me that since she started coming here and really understanding the gospel, everything has changed. She's like, she said, it's amazing how what you said is just so true in my own life because I'm now looking back at all of these circumstances that happened before I met Jesus and rethinking them, right? I understand them differently now in the context of the gospel. I can be grateful for things I was bitter about before because they brought me here. The gospel changes everything. It demands a response. It works. The gospel works. It changes how we think about the world and therefore it changes what we believe about the world and what we believe influences how we see ourselves, how we see ourselves influences how we behave. This is why the gospel works. It changes you from the inside out. It's the only thing that does, by the way. Laws and politics, they can change the outside world, right? They don't change things on the inside like the gospel does. Nothing changes people from the inside out like the gospel does. That's why it works. Jesus is teaching us here how to live like we've accepted the gospel, <laughs> how to forgive because we've been forgiven, how to grieve in the context of who he is and where we're going, how to take persecution because it's temporary, <laughs> because it has a purpose in the kingdom of God. It's teaching us how to change our perspective to fit the gospel. And he goes on. Not only does he change, he teaches us how to change our thinking, but he teaches us how to change our behavior by telling us our purpose. Verse 13. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. People that know me very well. I don't think I've ever said this publicly before, but I love salt. Like a little too much. Like I salt first and ask questions later. Anybody else like that in here? I love those big kernels of salt that come on soft pretzels. Some of you crazy people get unsalted pretzels. Why would anyone do that? It doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. In fact, I will avoid going to Wendy's because they don't know how to properly use salt on their french fries. And why would you have a french fry without salt? It doesn't make sense. Go to Burger King. They understand the proper use of salt. They're good fries, but literally only because of the salt. I have an abnormal love of salt. I don't know why. Aaron teases me. It's because I don't have a sense of taste like normal people. But... <laughs> I get this verse on a level that I think most people don't. What's the point of a pretzel without salt, right? What is the point of a Christian 
without bringing flavor to the world, without joy, right? I almost feel like, what's the point of life without salt on a pretzel? Like, just, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I'm only kind of kidding. That's the funny part. But honestly, what is the point of a Christian without bringing joy to the world? <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying. You're not only to bring the law and judgment. In fact, it's not your job to go around judging. It's your job to go around loving, to bring flavor, to bring goodness, to bring godliness to the world. And he goes on to say, here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world, not just the flavors, but the colors. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? Light bearers. I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop on a light stand, shine. That's your job. Shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. Be, by opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up to God, this generous Father in heaven. That's your job. Shine. Bring the flavor. Bring the God colors. And this is why it hurts my heart so much to see people have a negative perspective of the church. Because it reflects on God. Our behavior reflects on God. Oh, people, the Bible says that people don't have an excuse to not understand that there is a creator. Right? Creation itself speaks. We are the ones that give them an excuse. <laughs> Non-Christians, nine times out of ten, you ask them why they don't believe, they'll say it's because of the people, not because of God. The people. Especially if they've been around church before. Yeah, I don't mind God. I'm, I'm okay with him. It's the people that I can't stand. <laughs> it's his church. It's us. It's our behavior. We're not shining our lights properly and we're not bringing salt to the world. Don't suppose for a minute, verse 17, that I have come to demolish the scriptures, either God's, God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. He fulfilled what happened in Israel. He didn't demolish it, cross it out, and say, don't look back there. He fulfilled it. I'm going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after stars burn out and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's law, and you will only have trivialized yourself. But take it seriously. Show the way for others, and you will find honor in the kingdom. Unless you do far better than the Pharisees in matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. Here's the thing. In context, in cultural and historical context, the people that Jesus was talking to would have known exactly how seriously the Pharisees take the law. The Pharisees were fanatics about it. They, every single law, and there were a lot of them in the Old Testament, they understood completely, or they thought they did, and obeyed them to the letter. They went above and beyond the law. And they took things to a crazy degree. 
So the people listening when Jesus said this would have been like, wait, how am I supposed to do better than they're doing? Right? They parade around in the streets and congratulate themselves for how well they <laughs> obey the law. I can't possibly do better than that. I'd have to change everything about myself to do better than that. It's crazy. They would have understood the impossibility of this, that we will never enter the kingdom of God without Jesus. It's impossible. It isn't going to happen. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm a good person, right? That's another thing non-Christians say a lot. I'm a good person. I, I, I just volunteer occasionally. I look out for people. I've never murdered anyone, right? These are honestly the things that come out of our mouths. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. But Jesus not only looks at our perspective, he looks at our behavior. And it does say in Revelations, God's going to judge us by our deeds. And so Jesus takes it a step further than even our behavior. In fact, it's not just that you didn't murder anyone. Congratulations. It's about your thoughts, too. Verse 21, you're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Anybody been angry? At a person? Anybody angry right now? <laughs> a person? <clears throat> Carelessly call a brother idiot and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you are on the brink of hellfire. So literally any of us going out into traffic today... <laughs> are in trouble, right? The simple moral fact is that words kill. Congratulations, you haven't murdered anybody, but you probably called somebody an idiot. You probably thought it, at the very least, a few times, maybe even this morning yet, right? This is how I want you to conduct yourselves in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. Abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then, and only then, come back and work things out with God. Or say you're out on the street and an old enemy accosts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make things right with him. After all, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, you're likely to end up in court, maybe even jail. If that happens... You won't get out without a stiff fine. Okay, great. Haven't murdered, murdered anyone, check. But the, the idiot and the stupid thing might need some work on, right? So far, so good. I'm still a pretty good person. I try to be kind to people. But Jesus goes on. You know the next commandment pretty well, too. Don't go to bed with another spouse. But don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they are also corrupt. Let's not pretend this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. To choose to live one-eyed or else be dumped on the moral trash pile. And you have to chop off your right hand the moment you notice it raised threateningly. Better a bloody stump than your entire being discarded for good in the dump. Jesus is basically saying, this is impossible, guys. You're going to have to hack yourself up in order to avoid selfishness and sin. It's not happening. You can't do this on your own. Yeah, sure, you haven't committed adultery, check, but you've probably thought lustful thoughts. 
right? We all have. So, great, no murder, no adultery, check, check. But the other ones, not so much. Let's skip down to verse 33. He goes on. And don't say anything you don't mean. This counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk, saying, I'll pray for you, and never doing it, or saying, God, be with you, and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. And making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. Here's another saying that deserves a second look. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present out of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit for tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. This was especially true in ancient cultures. They hated their enemies with an everlasting passion. <clears throat> they bred it into their children. I mean, it was constantly taught. We now have the hindsight of having Jesus' teachings a little bit, but they, they didn't. Unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone regardless, the good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the unlovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. Ouch. Your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others. The way God lives toward you. Grow up. <laughs> like, okay, Jesus, you just hit us over the head like 14 different ways here. We realize we can't do this. And now you're just saying, just grow up. You're a child. You're immature. <laughs> grow up, he says. And this is where he starts to uh, teach about our attitude a little bit. Our perspective and our behavior affect our sort of default attitude towards the world. And you know, as Christians, we're guilty of this too. We default into the world is crazy and hateful and painful, and we're not living in this yet. We're praying that it comes soon. Someday God's going to come back and fix it, but right now we're just living in the kingdom of man, and everything's awful, and they're all going to hell in a handbasket, and the news, you can't even look at that anymore. It's crazy. The truth is, we're living in the kingdom of God now. A few weeks ago, I shared an article, maybe it was months ago, I forget now, shared an article called Six Surprising Ways Jesus Changed the World. Anybody remember that one? It's in your notes uh, on the app if you want to look it up. But the surprising ways that Jesus changed the world, if you really look at this big picture, and this is why this perspective is important, you can see the kingdom of God is coming now. 
And before Jesus came, we didn't have any version of health care at all. We didn't take care of people. Remember the Good Samaritan story? He didn't take the man on the side of the road to a hospital. He took him to a, a hotel, essentially somebody's house. It wasn't even like a hotel like we know today. And he paid somebody to take care of him. That was their only version of health care that they had available to them. Since Jesus came, guess who created health care? Churches. Jesus followers. In fact, it was the Council of Nyssa, I believe, that proclaimed that every, uh, what, what are the big cathedral, every church, big church cathedral should have a compassion center, should have a place to take care of the sick. That's where hospitals came from. Christians, Jesus followers, thought up the idea. We are living in the kingdom of God, and the, the idea is spreading throughout the world, right? Everybody should have health care now. Now, don't get me wrong, there are issues with it. We live in a fallen world. There are issues, but we have it. I'm so grateful personally that I had a good hospital to take care into when he needed it, right? We're taking care of each other. Since Jesus came, we're also taking care of women and children better than ever. In fact, before that, all of the ancient cultures devalued women and really didn't care about children at all. They were to be discarded. They were a dime a dozen. Nobody thought much about them at all. In fact, churches were the ones in the first couple of centuries after Jesus that started coming up with orphanages because Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. They thought, oh, we better start obeying Jesus and taking care of these kids running around in the streets. No parents. Churches were the ones who set up orphanages and foster care. They also pushed the women's agenda forward and were taking care of each other better than ever. Because of this, because of our, our value toward children, because of Jesus' value toward children, we are also the ones who pushed education. Churches pushed education. They started trying to educate everyone, not just the elite rich, but everyone so that they could read the Bible. That's where education started. And if you look at the world through those lenses, you can see the kingdom of God is advancing. We are taking care of each other in civilized society way better than we used to because of Jesus' words. You know, almost every single elementary school still uses Jesus' words. We all want to complain how the Bible's taken out of schools, but they all proclaim the golden rule. Guess who said the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Jesus. His words are still used everywhere. The kingdom of God is advancing through the world. 80,000 people a day around the world come to know Jesus. The gospel is working. It's real and it's active. I don't know how many of you have been to a uh, third world country, but I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to India in 2009. And I can tell you, when you enter into a culture that is not predominantly Christian, you can feel the difference. It's tangible. And just walking through the streets in India, you can feel the sexual immorality. Like the way they look at you is different. It's just pervasive. They sell their children into sexual slavery there like it's normal. Most families living in the slums do it. The predominant religions there are Hindu and Muslim. It's like 1% Christian. 
the missionaries that are there are trying their hardest, but they're fighting a very large battle. They're going to win eventually because the gospel works. They're fighting a very large battle. And as they do, you'll see the nation of India start to educate their kids. That's, by the way, that's where we went. We went to a Christian church that had a school that sponsors kids to teach them, educate them, to show them how to live in the kingdom of God. And they were right in the middle of the slum. Millions of people in this slum. They only had 100 kids. We need a lot more churches around the world. That's how the kingdom of God is going to advance. That's what we're living in. This is the day and age the kingdom of God is working. But guess what? Those missionaries can't do it alone. We all have a job to do. And to do that job, we have to change our perspective. We have to see the world the way Jesus saw it. We have to understand his words when he said, the kingdom of God is here now because it lives in you. You can take the kingdom wherever you go. You are to advance the kingdom throughout the world. That's our job. You know, there was a woman in our congregation who passed away recently, just almost exactly a month ago. Her name was Eva. Eva was only with us a very short time, about four months, I believe. And I didn't have the privilege of being super close to her, but we did have some conversations, and I know that she was a woman of faith. A life hadn't always been easy or kind to her. In fact, she showed up at Freedom Valley from a domestic abuse shelter in Gettysburg. Two weeks after Eva moved in to that domestic abuse shelter, it closed and she again had nowhere to go. But while she was there, she would message me occasionally and she would say, okay, now um, I have all these women in the basement, in the, in the shelter. What can I say that would encourage them? Can I have some Bible verses? <laughs> and as Eva began to minister to those women, what turned, honestly, what started as just a, a prayer meeting in the basement turned into church in that domestic abuse shelter. In the basement, she was having church with those women. The very first, well, really the second weekend she had come to Freedom Valley, she came the first weekend that she was there, and then the next week she had messaged me on, like, Friday night, and she said, okay, I have, like, 10 or 12 people that want to come to church with me. Can we get them rides, do you think? And I was like, it's not very much time to get rides together. And I explained to her that, honestly, we're not very good at getting rides for people. I think it's just our location and the fact that people are spread all over the place and Hanover and Gettysburg and all around we're just not very good at finding rides for people. I just want you to know. But I will try. I'll do my best. And this has never happened before, ever. But I posted that night immediately after she messaged me. I said, hey, can anyone get rides? There's a lot of people that want to come from Gettysburg. It'd be awesome if we could get them rides. Within five minutes, somebody messaged me and said, hey... I can pick them up, and not only can I pick them up this week, but I can probably do every week after. Oh, and I have a 15-passenger van. It's like, what? It's never happened before, and I immediately messaged Eva back, and I said, hey, I have a 15-passenger van coming to pick you guys up next week, and she said, great, I have a couple more seats to fill. I'll fill them. <laughs> if ever there was a woman living within the kingdom of God, even though she was in very dark circumstances, it was Eva. She inspired me to 
I don't know, understand that even when I'm in a dark place, I can still use that moment, right? My life doesn't have to be perfect, picture perfect on the outside in order to draw other people to Jesus. In fact, the darker the circumstances, the more brightly you can shine, right? You can care for people in the basement of a domestic abuse shelter. You can love them to Jesus. She saw her friends come to know Jesus in a way that I think most of us are terrified of. She wasn't scared. She brought them to church with her in droves. Some of them still come today. And I want to read you a Facebook post of Eva's from August 28th, just three months after coming to Pennsylvania. She titles it, Obey God and Leave All the Consequences to Him. Since coming to Pennsylvania three months ago, I have followed this principle wholeheartedly and witnessed God do amazing things in my life. When we first came to PA, we were in a domestic violence shelter, which closed their doors two weeks later. My son and I were then transferred to another shelter for several weeks and then to a hotel. Prayer became my number one priority during this entire transition. A few weeks ago, we were given a date at which time we had to vacate the hotel. Naturally, I wanted to call around for houses. I even posted our housing needs on here. I thank all of you who prayed for us. Each time I sought God regarding our housing, he just said, wait and trust me. Time was running out. It was five days until the vacate deadline and still no leads, no word from God to contact houses, landlords, nothing, just wait and trust me. And that's exactly what I did. My faith became stronger than ever. Praying without ceasing became a natural instinct. Last Thursday, as soon as I got off work, God placed on my heart to visit a certain friend. I immediately went to see her, at which time she said her landlord had an apartment available in Gettysburg. I contacted him Thursday evening and we began moving in on Sunday. In just three days, God answered our prayer. My faith is stronger than ever. If you're waiting on God for an answer, a solution, a blessing, don't give up. He is working things out behind the scenes at this very moment. He is in the details. Draw closer to him in the waiting. It will happen at the right time, in the right way. Most times not our way, but the best way. He is faithful. This is how you model living in the kingdom of God. Even in the darkest place, when things look really grim, when you don't know what your next move is going to be, you pray harder than ever. You seek God's face harder than ever. You, in the meantime, put his needs, his mission for your life first. You minister to others while you wait, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he'll give all these other things to you. That's what the Bible says. When you seek his kingdom first, he's going to take care of you wholeheartedly and it may look differently and it may make you a little nervous along the way but he's going to take care of you when you seek his kingdom first even knew that she modeled that for the rest of us and life wasn't always easy for her in fact it was probably harder than most she sought his kingdom first and i think the best way to honor her today would be to offer Jesus to all of you. In just a minute, you're going to have a chance to respond to the gospel. 
a gospel that changes everything, a gospel that brings the kingdom of God here now. But you're also going to have a chance to say, God, I haven't been spreading the gospel like I should. I want to start doing that today. So would you pray? Bow your heads, close your eyes. Pray with me. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Thank you that your news is good news. That we can proclaim it everywhere and wherever it touches, it brings goodness. It brings love, it brings peace and freedom. We thank you for your good news that you sent Jesus here to free us from our chains, to bring hope and light and salt to the earth. God, let us be your ambassadors. Let us be more passionate than ever at spreading your word, more good at it than ever. God, give us a special anointing to spread the good news in Adams County in our nation and across the world. Make us vibrant, passionate, selfless disciples that want to change the world with the message of the gospel. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. And I don't know about you guys, I, I want to live intentionally here and stop living accidentally here to acknowledge what's already come, that I can live in it, that I can be a part of it, that I can advance the kingdom. That's our job. We're, we're his subjects, his soldiers, his knights. We go into the world and carry his gospel. Let's do that this week. Let's, let's not ever lose sight of the fact that we live in the kingdom of heaven. How awesome is that? Before you go from this place, I do wanna remind you, if you made a decision to follow Jesus today, to text the number on the screen behind me. Let somebody know, stop by the table on your way out. You can sign up for baptism, like make a next step of faith and remind yourself the importance of your commitment to Christ and, and live this week out for your friends, for your neighbors. Live a different life, live a kingdom life this week. Would you guys stand up with me before we go from here? I wanna take a second, thank everyone for being a part of a church that I love to attend, that I love to worship with. We are a family, this is our home. So thank you for being here worshiping with us. Let's, let's pray before we go. Our heavenly Father, our Lord and our God, our King, we worship you and we praise you. I thank you for this word and this challenge to be a part of your kingdom here on earth, to advance the kingdom well, to carry the gospel. Bless each and every individual as they go, carrying your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks so much for worshiping with us. There's gonna be prayer here at the front of the stage. I love you guys. I'll see you next week.